When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. to save the club but we were we were we were on the receiving end of quite a number of threats for quite some time about being caught up in litigation threatened personally because we tried to save or we had saved the club um some people believed it shouldn't have gone that way it should have gone another way and Hello and welcome to the latest in the lockdown interviews. You're listening to Back of the Net, the AFC Bournemouth podcast. My name's Sam Davis and I certainly hope you're enjoying the chats that we're putting out. It is great to hear from former players that performed so well for the football club. But this interview is a little bit different as we chat to Cherry supporter and former AFCB chairman Trevor Watkins. It's myself and Jeff Hayward on this one. And Trevor was thrust into the limelight in 1997 as he was pioneering a takeover which saw AFCB become Europe's first community football club. Now we discussed the financial disarray at the time, the unexpected Winter Gardens turnout and the fact that they had to stash buckets in a car in the New Forest overnight. But it did get better because in 1998 the Cherries went to Wembley not the best result. It felt like a tonic after what happened, though. And then the new stadium in 2001. Plus, we talk about the coronavirus and the Premier League. So this is an evening with Trevor Watkins. Trevor Watkins. Trevor, hi. You? Yeah, good. Good evening. Nice to see you. <laughs> Good, good, and I'm liking the mug as well. Nice and this is this is this is my Christmas present from my daughters. This was uh, it was very very apt actually. Absolutely superb. And uh, Jeff, you're wearing uh, a classic shirt as well. I feel a bit left yeah. out. Oh, it should have been yeah. This shirt. this is this is the shirt purchased on. Uh, I think I purchased it on Wembley Way as we were walking up to Wembley the day we played Grimsby. Um, yeah. Won't talk about the result, but it was a fantastic day. Yeah, oh, wasn't it just? Well, I'm sure we'll touch on that in this video. But uh, Trevor, um, I know you grew up in the area, started supporting AFC Bournemouth in the 70s. Um, and then alongside this, outside of football, in terms of your career, um, you soon established yourself in this sort of legal profession. You worked in the city as a lawyer, um, whilst mm-hmm. constantly supporting the Cherries throughout uh, the 70s and then 80s, which included, you know, the cup upsets and I'm thinking oh, yeah, Harry Redknapp, time. Mm. Dave Webb. Yeah. And then and then in the 90s, which saw some turbulent times, let's say. Um, and it was it was in December 96, I think, when the chairman at the time quit. Was it Ken Gardner at the time? No, was Ken was there. Norman Hayward was there. Yeah. And it was all quite a bum fight, wasn't it? And they all resigned yeah. and they were all falling out with each other. And yeah. I think we owed a few million quid. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's nothing like <clears throat> modern days. So can you um, explain how, how you turned from the average man on the terrace to someone that ultimately threw themselves headfirst in this you know, financial nightmare that the Cherries were in? 
Well, I was, I probably was never really cut out to be a lawyer. I wasn't, I was going to be an English teacher. And then for one reason or another, I was at Bournemouth school and I ended up um, doing an extra year to, to try and go and do law at university, which I ended up doing. And to be honest, I was working in the city, but my dad had taken me to watch the Cherries February 74. I think we played Warsaw, which I think we won 1-0. And I just carried on going. I went with my mates and from school. We used to play football, not very well, but used to love it. And it really became part of life. So my dad and I used to keep on going. And by the time we got to 97, we were sitting in the main stand. We used to stand on the away end because it's what we could afford at the time. But yeah, working in the city, my goodness, I could afford a season ticket in the centre of the stand. So um, high times sitting in that old wooden <laughs> stand before it was falling down and condemned. Um, Terry, Terry Lovell, the commercial director at the time. And, you know, as a vice president, we used to get a cup of tea and biscuits at half time in the uh, very luxurious under the stand um, sort of director's lounge area and I just said to him you know by the way I work in the city I'm a lifetime supporter if I can do anything to help I'd love to he said oh, right right well I'll think about it let me I'll let you know and then the news in the daily echo because of those times we rely right on that every day in print form to see what was going on unless you're doing teletext and, and, and ringing the, the ringing the premium number to see what was going on um and he hadn't rung me, and yet the news was getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, I think it was the Rotherham game Matty Holland had been playing in that I'd made this offer. And about eight, nine days later, I rang him again and said, oh, look, is there any news? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't you come to a meeting tomorrow night, which is Tuesday? And I said, all right. And he said, look, come to, uh, it was this really dodgy hotel in Niverton Road in, in Portsmouth. <laughs> And it was lashing it down with rain. I went down there and eventually a guy called Roy Pack came out, Australian guy. And he said, I'm here to represent the two remaining directors, a chap called Brian Willis. He's a lovely guy, um, still goes to games. He often sits behind me at the games. And a chap called Norman Hayward, who used to be chairman. And they owed, well, the club owed a lot of money to the bank. Um, and I said, well, look, we work with the bank. Maybe I can help. And they came in the next day to see me in my law firm in London. We spoke to the bank. The bank wasn't interested unless they put up more money. And then two days later, the bank shut the club on a Friday morning. Well, all fairly dramatic then. I mean, who do you think was responsible that it, that it ended up in such a parlous state at that time? Oh, I don't know. It's really hard. I mean, I don't think anybody ever intends to take over a football club and then finally haven't got the money. I think that... Um, too many circumstances came together. At that time, the club was very reliant on selling players. Norman Hayward had done a very good job, actually, in prior years of doing that, developing talent, selling them on. And the club had just reached its ultimate negative position. You know, many teams, particularly lower league teams, still rely on people to put money in. And all the directors, a guy called Colin Legg, who used to own the uh, golf course over at Dusbury, he'd put a stack of money in. Um, Jeffrey Haywood, absolutely wonderful man, had put a stack of money in. And they'd hit the, hit the buffers. And they were borrowing money at exorbitant rates from places in outfits in Monaco. And the bank had had enough. So it shut the door. And I'd gone to work that Friday, got home that Friday night. There was a message on my answer phone. No such things as mobiles then. Um, <laughs> And it was from 
this Australian guy, Royston Pack, saying the club's been shut. Will you come to a meeting next morning? I could have said yes. I could have said no. I said I'd go. Went to a meeting with him, Arthur Anderson, who were appointed as receivers. Uh, Brian was there, Brian Willis, Norman. And they were all arguing because basically the league had said, put some money up or you're going to be shut down completely. You're not going to play any more games. The team were playing away at Bristol City that afternoon, which they won 1-0. Yeah. Ian Cox scored. And um, ultimately, they looked at me and they said, well, you said you wanted to help. You you, ra- you raised the money. I was like, yeah. right. Yeah. I wanted 650,000 the league within wow. five days to show that we could survive the season. You know, bearing in mind that was probably oh, more than 30% of the club's annual turnover. So, I mean, at that point, were you, were you provided access to look at the finances and, you know, check the numbers no. forensically. I mean, but no. surely with that figure in mind, you know, given the attendances at the time, you must have been thinking, OK, this is going to be a struggle. No, I didn't actually. The weird thing was I kind of turned up. I think I'd cycled up there uh, on the Saturday morning. So I was playing football that afternoon and I kind of listened. And the guys from Arthur Anderson were saying, well, we're not putting money in. The bank's not putting money in. The director said, well, we're not putting any money in. And they said, well, you, you know, you do it. You said you wanted to help. And I just, by luck, when I'd had my year out from school and university, because I decided I wanted to do law, not English, so I had to stay out for a year and try to go to, to Oxford, I'd ended up working for the BBC voluntarily um, with a guy called Richard Williams, because his, te- his teacher at Porchester School had um, said, let's put a programme on four or five nights a week with a guy called Nick Girdler, um, oh, yeah. to do to do something else it was what it was called and i'd gone on there and i was the person who went out and interviewed people to uh, do bits and pieces for the program so pop stars and celebrities that came into the area and by this time 12 years on richard was the sports editor for radio solem so i rang him he said well come on the show you know you know what you to do go to the studio at the bic i'll interview you so i got this interview where he was going this is trevor watkins he knows what's going on at bournemouth trevor what do we need to do i need to raise all this money Mm. and people started ringing him so i mean was it at that point that you thought that you need to because obviously you could have gone to you know maybe some investors or whatever but your thought was to you know let's try to involve the community somehow oh i didn't know anything about it at that stage I mean, at the end of the day, I was a lawyer working in London who just so happened to follow AFC Bournemouth. I was a, a litigation lawyer, nothing to do with football, nothing to do with corporate rescues, nothing to do with finance. It just seemed like, uh, uh, you know, this is my club. This is the team I'd watched all my life. Um, and I offered to help. And then things began to develop. Um, the Australian guy that the two directors had brought in, he was quite clearly wanting to control the process. It was really a war between them and the bank, um, a war that went on for many, many years. And I didn't know that at the time, really. I mean, I'd got some inkling of it. But the next day, this Australian guy called me in to his hotel uh, in Niverton Road, made very clear he was going to be in control, but wanted there to be a public me- uh, not, uh, meeting at the club on the Sunday night, which I went to. And Mel Machen came and Matty Holland. Um, uh, and a number of the councillors, a number of supporters. And that was probably the pivotal moment because 
one of the councillors said, well, why don't you have a public meeting Tuesday night? And I said, well, I'm very happy to do that, but I need some help. And four or five supporters, a chap called Ken Dando, a guy called Andrew Kay, um, and many others volunteered. Um, they, Andy Noonan, uh, they would all become pivotal in the future of the club. And at that point, I cottoned on that there was going to be more of a fight between the directors and the bank. And I said, fine, well, I'm prepared to do this if it's a public thing, it's independent, it's for the supporters, it's for the town, it's the community. That's when it really started. And I remember Terry Lovell at the club was great. He got a press release out for us on Monday. The council said use the Winter Gardens. Sadly, no longer anymore, is it, anymore? Yeah, Tuesday night. Right. I took the day off work. We had, we had a meeting that Monday night of six of us, Andrew Kay, Ken Dando, Andy Noon and others all of whom, or those who are still with us, still watch the club. And I think from that moment on, every night for five, six months, we met. We did our work. We got together at six o'clock. We finished at midnight, sometimes one in the morning. I would invariably go to bed, get up and go to London the next day and then come back because I was way too junior in my law firm at that point to be able to work from home. Um, how times change. Um, <laughs> no no COVID-19 yeah. then. Um and we just what we did. And it was a wing and a prayer, literally. And we got caught up in a real skirmish, a bum fight between the directors and the bank. We got caught up in huge amounts of uh, disagreements between different people that wanted different things to the club. But we just grew and grew. And, you know, uh, within, a, within a matter of days, decided maybe it was worth trying to save it and buy it for the fans, which is what happened in the end. That was fantastic. I mean, at what point did they actually give up and, and decide they weren't going to fight you? They didn't. It went on for years. We were threatened for years and years and years after the takeover. Um, and as many different, um, everybody's entitled to a different opinion, obviously, in terms of how they interpret things. What really surprised me was the, um, you know, the the way in which that played out. Um we we were only ever trying to save the club, but we were we were we were on the receiving end of quite a number of threats for quite some time about being caught up in litigation, threatened personally because we tried to save or we had saved the club. Um, some people believed it shouldn't have gone that way; it should have gone another way. And um, unfortunately, mm-hmm. I think the supporters as a group got 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 in the way to a degree, and it and it was tough to be honest. It was, you know, there's some very very good people. People like Brian Willis, um, people like Jeffrey Hayward, Peter Hayward, people like Peter Aldersley, who still go every week. John still goes every week. Uh, John Saunders, who still goes every week. Uh, Andrew Kay, who goes whenever he can. Um, all these people, um, Peter Phillips, who became chairman later on, um, they all played their part <coughs> in keeping the club alive. So... There were thousands that turned out at the Winter Gardens. Did you expect that kind of turnout? No, not in a million years. It was it was unbelievable. And I think we raised about £35,000 that night. I mean, what did you do with the money that night? Put it in buckets and, and took, it, <laughs> took, it out to, took it out to the New Forest and hid it. Really? Um, really? Our, tactical, our tactical planning, a bit like the government these days. You never wow. quite know exactly how to deal with all the circumstances. And to be fair, we didn't, we, there's a lot of things we didn't get right. We, we were making up as we went along. Um, and that was one of them. 
crikey, it's 11 o'clock at night. We've got bucket loads of cash. Where do we do? What do we do with it? So a couple of the guys slept out in the new forest um, looking after the money. You know, it's it was hand to mouth. But, you know, the next morning, Jeffrey Hayward rang and said, I'll give you £100,000. Wow. Whoa. You know, Harry Redknapp rang up. You know, he, um, he eventually lent us some money in the end. Mm. Um, but a lot of people put a lot of faith in that supporter group. I mean, many people probably remember Ken Dando. Yes. Sadly died a few years after the rescue happened. Um, and, you know, it's a terrific picture of him, Andrew Kay, Steve Fletcher, Eddie Howe, myself, on the south end, shaking a bottle of champagne, because that's what the Daily Echo said yeah. to do. Um, and it's a brilliant picture of us. I mean, that just goes down in memory. And I think that and the the huge ask of the town and what everybody did. Um, you know, I don't think any of us probably realised how open we'd suddenly be to scrutiny and criticism and hassle and so on. But nobody ever backed away. And these people, everybody did it for nothing. And I think that's incredible. And the fact they will still go and watch the club. And, you know, different chairmen subsequently have had their views, had their disagreements over supporters rescuing the club. Uh, and ultimately, had we not done it, the club would probably have survived in some shape or form, one way or another. Um, but, you know, we I, I, I firmly believe we did our best since 23 years ago. And... Um, we we worked incredibly hard and we had some great support from across the fan base. I think it's always interesting when it comes to takeovers because fans expect people to put their money into very deep pockets to bail out clubs. And I don't think there's necessarily a great understanding of what is actually involved in doing that. You know, the cost, not just financially, but personally as well for, for people like you to do that, to do what you did. Yeah, I mean, it didn't cost me directly in finance. I never had the money to put money up front. It cost me in other ways. And it cost a lot of people a lot of money. Um, the likes of your Peter Alders, it is, your Andrew Dawson, who came in as CEO, people who really cared passionately. And I think particularly at lower level. If you're going to be involved in, in running a club, you take Keith McAllister, who I have the privilege of sitting. I sit next to Vicar, the current club secretary, and Keith with my season ticket now. Keith has been involved in the club since 1969. Mm. And when he opened the supporters uh, shed, as it was at that time, and Keith became club secretary and was a yeah. star. The likes of Liz Finney, who still work at the club who, with Andrew Dawson, be washing out the toilets at midnight on a Saturday night. That's what you don't see. Yeah. It's really, you know, the, the sheer dedication of people is, is absolutely incredible. And I, I remember the funniest thing was, looking back, is this guy, Roy Pack, who himself, himself was a hired gun, being paid by the directors. And, you know, he did a good job. He got them off their personal guarantees. Um, but he said, oh, that Watkins, he's just in it for himself. He's in it to make a name for himself. And that was funny because that was the furthest thing from the truth. 
But I, the, the irony is here I am 23 years on doing nothing other than advising in sport and entertainment with some of the biggest events and clubs and so on. Um, and still sitting and watching Bournemouth whenever I can. And still got my season ticket. My dad's no longer with us. He died actually 10 years ago, near enough. Um, and I miss that because that used to be my time with him. But now with daughters and being able to take them and it's hard to get tickets. Very hard to get tickets. Um, I, they can go to more away games because the clubs we work with and they can for me trying to buy a ticket at Bournemouth. But they sometimes come to cup games and they love it. And mm-hmm. Having a six and eight year old that love doing that is fantastic. So it's just so, like I do with my dad. Yeah. So as chairman, um, what sort of how much input were you having in the day to day running of the club? Because um, obviously, you know, at the time, weren't you juggling work? and also being chairman, but, you know, it got so intense at AFC Bournemouth that, you know, you as good as um, sacrificed your, well, your personal and some of your professional relationships. Oh, I was effectively sacked, I think, looking back on it. It was one of those discussions of, I remember we we got to Wembley, as you, we talked about, and um, my boss at this big city law firm was very understanding, and he did come back and say, after about a year of this, look, I think either you can be chairman of the club or partner in this law firm, which is fair in actual fact. But then he said, you know, you either choose one or the other. And if I were you, I'd choose being being chairman of the club because you'll make something of it. You will have a career in sport. Now, I didn't see that at the time. And I came to work in Bournemouth, which was a disastrous mistake. Um, well-meaning firm, but it really didn't work for me working outside of London. And I ended up going to work for a small firm in Southampton and wondering where it would where it would all lead and whether I should just give up on being a lawyer. Um, never wanted to take a penny out of the club, never took a penny out of the club as chairman. I didn't believe, I didn't think that was right. So we had a full-time chief exec come in. But obviously everybody on the board, the Andy Noonans, the Andrew Kays, the Ken Dandos, etc., Peter Aldersley, um, were giving their time for nothing unless it became their job as it did for Peter for a time. And yeah, it was, it's hard because sometimes I find it very difficult to see, see where it was all going to lead. And to say, um, it is, there it is, there is an irony now that, um, here I sit here and I'm very lucky to work with the likes of Liverpool, Southampton, other teams and around across Europe and on not just football, but you know, Olympic games and horse racing and various other bits and pieces. And there was a lot of talk about Mel Bush at the time, who was, uh, for those listening who don't go back that far, was a bit of a pop promoter of his day uh, and another consortium. Why do you think Lloyds Bank backed you and the the community club idea? It's a good question, because, of course, Mel and I, we spoke. We offered to fall in behind him, but it wasn't right for him at the time. Um, And, of course, the irony is that we signed Jason Tyndall, who then married his daughter. Um, and <laughs> that, um, it's funny how things come around. Isn't it just? Because Jason went to manage Weymouth, if you remember, years yeah, and years right. ago. And I think that I have a lot more appreciation for why Mel would not have wanted to have us fall in behind at the time. Hugely successful in music world and entertainment and very used to running his own business. Um, the other bit, of course, was from 
Norman Hayward, uh, he would have come back in. But again, he put himself behind the supporters, which is full credit to him for doing so. And the bank, I, I don't know. I remember it was Colin, Colin Grant, is his name, is the bank manager. I remember we were up in London, um, Ken Dando and I, and we were negotiating with the bank. And they just said, look, we're not going to let the club go for anything less than the land value. And I know we've been criticised for doing that deal on, on those terms. But they basically said, why, why should we? we? We've done the hard part. We put it into receivership. We could build houses. We'll get our money back in full. But we are prepared to do a deal. And it is frustrating. And I, I do appreciate that a number of people wouldn't understand necessarily the legal implications there's always a difference between if you've got your money secured on land and if you're unsecured. So we had two issues. We had to deal with Lloyds because they could build houses on the land and pay them what the land was worth effectively or what they were owed. And we had to deal with the unsecured creditors, which was a football league requirement, which is why we ended up doing the deal that we did, which I still was, I'm adamant, was a very good deal. But why did the bank back us? Well, this guy said to me in the meeting, we're not going to alter our price, but we believe you're the people that will repay us in full. Now, eventually we did. But of course, football moved on. And five years after the supporter rescue, wages were shooting up. The ground needed rebuilding. Um, we hadn't found anybody with tens of millions of pounds who wanted to back the club in 97. And it was a very hard ask in 2001, 2002. And a bit like the situation we're in now as a, in this country and worldwide with this epidemic. You have to make your decisions based on the right views at the right time and by consensus. And that doesn't mean you get it right in everybody's mind. And we didn't. Um, and eventually, of course, uh, when Tony Swaysland came in as chairman, he replaced me. Um, and other chairmen followed. And then Peter Phillips was left to pick up the pieces, so to speak, and made the decision to sell the stadium. Now, again, he's been criticised for that, but he has made that decision having explored all the options. It's not easy. And full credit to every chairman there's been. They make decisions in the public eye. Yeah, so one of the ways that obviously we could make money was through player sales. And of course, we yep. know that Matt Holland went, Jamie Vincent, um, Ian Cox as well. Although Ian Cox, there was a yeah. I read something about you debating a one and a half million pound deal for him. Is that right? No, I apologised to Ian a few weeks back, actually, um, oh. about that, because he's back on the um, the community, That's the, correct, yeah. the, the, the club. And um, I said, you know, it was four or five o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon when um, Fulham rang. And I think Kevin Keegan was the manager and he wanted to sign him. And we were playing away at Chesterfield that night. Now, Mel Machin, those of you who know Mel, Mel's quite stroppy in a very good way I, 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 he's brilliant I mean I know we had the nine faces of Mel that all look the same but he, he 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 was brilliant he gave us the time of day he would always explain his decisions and we, we were playing Chesterfield and I didn't think it was probably the best time to ring him and tell him to drop Ian Cox I think probably I wasn't confident enough to do that I probably should have done for many reasons for the club for Ian particularly um but he's on, on his own admission, he had a nightmare that night. Mm. And Fulham withdrew their interest the next morning. Now, 
maybe that means their interest wasn't going to be as strong as it, yeah. it but you know with hindsight it is a wonderful thing um, but yeah one and a half million would have gone a long, cool. long, long, long way. Well, it, it would have gone a long way. And when you look at some of the central defenders that we had at the time, like Eddie Howe, um, and then, of course, a certain Frenchman, Mr. Frank Rolling, who was oh, instrumental yeah. in our Wembley run, I still feel gutted and disappointed for him to this very day that he didn't get any minutes at Wembley. But Wembley, I mean, that was another financial boost for the club. But just tell us your memories. Um, obviously, Let's start from the semi-finals because we won two 0 at Walsall. And what a, what a perfect evening! Beautiful. I mean, yeah. every fan says, "Well, you know, your club never makes it easy." But I mean, come on, we've we've gone up and won two 0 I'm thinking, mm. "Wow, this is good." But it 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 didn't go quite according to plan at home. But it was Frank Rolling that that popped up with the winner. Well, it wasn't even the winner because we lost three two, didn't we? Yeah, if it, he remember it was um, didn't they go three one up? Yeah, they did. Yeah, and it was looking like looking very dodgy. Um, but I just remember Frank steaming up from the back. Mm. People were never quite sure, and he did. It wasn't a header. He volley. He kicked it in, yeah. and it was like, yeah, what, what's he doing? Why is he running <laughs> up the pitch? Um, and of course. The, the Michael, the vicar we at the time, who was sadly very ill. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just remember him saying, oh, we, we got covered in champagne and by the players and everything. And it was it was just the most momentous occasion. I mean, who can forget John Bailey kind of stripped mm-hmm. down to his shorts, selling shirts to the supporters mm-hmm. in the club shop while we were waiting to actually get on a coach to go up to Wembley. Yeah. It was just brilliant. crazy times. Um, then he went and scored as well. So he went and scored. He did. He not him through. It was just so annoying that we lose losing the circumstances we did. Yeah. Um, but you know, sixty three and a half thousand. What a party! That was um, great. Yeah. Yeah, we've had some great evenings in our time, and you know, the rescue, the second rescue that Jeff Mostyn led. It was very different. Um, no less serious, but a very different feel, a very different um, situation in that we we had got somebody who could write the check and did so. And I think, you know, we, should, we are all incredibly grateful to Jeff. I've got to know Jeff very well indeed. And that's one of the lovely things for me is that as, a, as an ex-chairman, you know, sometimes you don't want an ex-chairman kind of rolling around the place, but he's got quite a few of them um, <laughs> sitting around. And he he and I have had the pleasure of many chats and many adventures, in actual fact. Um, he still won't forgive me for a few of those, but um, we, 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 they, no, in the nicest sense, because he, he's, he's a tremendous gentleman. Um, and it's always an absolute pleasure when we sit and talk um which we do quite often actual fact which is nice and you know when you look at it one of the interesting things is how what the fans did 23 years ago and what jeff did how it all has kind of come together because your management team at the club eddie richard hughes steve fletcher and so on they all got their place at the club in that era 
of 97 onwards. They all came together. Jason Tindall was signed. Um, of the Richard Hughes was signed. And it, it's nice to see that now because they're the team that have delivered the Premier League to the club. And Jeff, if the fans hadn't done what they did, Jeff hadn't done what he did, we wouldn't be here. Neither would the people who pulled it all together in the late 90s, early 2000s, who are now doing that now in the Premier League. I think you're right there, Trevor. I think a lot of the DNA of the club about its community feel, the community spirit, it, it's, it's really deep within the club still, you know, and not just through the fans, which you kind of expect. A lot of fans feel very intimately connected to the club, but it is the playing staff, the coaching staff, the management, all the people who work there. It's very strong. Yeah, and it's, I remember it, you know, it was um, when the time came for me not to be chairman anymore, that was very much down to another, to Tony Swayzeland wanting to put money into the club. And if he was going to put money into the club quite fairly, wanting to be the chairman. Um, and that goes with the territory. And I think that my, you know, I, to be honest, it was a good time for me to stand down as well. But I wondered then, I wondered, well, what, where is it going to go? What's going to happen? What? And it did take some years to get back, to begin to get back to normal, to actually enjoy watching the games again. Because it's a hell of a job when you're a director worrying about the win, the lose, the draw. I mean, you can imagine at the moment, goodness knows where this season ends up. Um, this whole pandemic could be a blessing in disguise if, if we do play again, because most of our teams should be fit, hopefully. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, you know, what, what for a David Brooks playing a game um, yeah, which he may, right. may not have done um, before but generally that DNA that feel is there it's, 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 um, it's around the ground it's, um, it's in who you sit with the faces you see and that's been the same all the way through yeah so it was 2001 that you stepped down i think I, yeah now i listened to an interview with uh that you did with michael dunn from the all departments podcast this was about five or six years ago yeah and under your chairmanship one of the things you said in the interview that um pricked my ears up a little bit was you occasionally saw glimpses of the things that weren't right from the previous regime um can you expand on what you meant by that well I think it's just been well documented. You know, Ken Gardner fell out with a number of the other directors. Um, and generally speaking, it's, you know, it, it's so long ago now. It, you, you just could see that a lot of the problems had come from some of the ways of management. And I said, no, we, don't, we, didn't, we didn't get that right. And I've got, you've got the likes of, say, Brian Willis and Norman Hayward, who stayed there and looked to try and put things right. Um, but it was obviously a very divided board at the time. One of the things you got um, right, as I said earlier, were the, the player sales when we needed it to help pay wages. One of the ones maybe that you and the management maybe got wrong, but this was... Uh, very unfortunate was the signing of Roger Bolly. What yeah. happened there? <laughs> mm -hmm. do, you remember we had, do you remember we had Mark Steen? Oh, yeah. He was great. Mark Steen was a he terrific was signing. He was a yeah, free I'm transfer. Trying, he was, yeah, I was, was trying to deflect attention to one of our better signings. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, no, I'm claiming no credit for any signings apart from one. It wasn't Roger. Um, Roger had had a terrific season. He had, yeah. He's got 33 goals or something like that in your previous year. 
he was available for about 150,000 and we had money. And Mel said, uh, you yeah, know, let's look at the strikers. Let's look who we can bring in. And he came in. Now, our medical, may, you know, nowadays, the medicals they go through would be far more stringent. But what, what we didn't know then and we found out was his legs had gone. He I mean, didn't have heart, the same acceleration. Your heart must have sank when you saw him, you know, going off the pitch in tears. And you just, he must be thinking, you know, that was six figures gone. Yeah, he is. Because it was particularly when you don't got any money. Um, there again, the reason we signed Jermaine Defoe, and this is true, was I we, we'd lost the day before. It might have been Colchester. I can't remember who we lost to, but I'd gone into the ground on the Sunday. The manager and I was going, Look, you need to score goals. It's clear from I could say things to. Him. I said, you need to sign a striker. Well, I've got any. Who are we going to sign? I can't get anybody. And I was writing a column for 442, and on the back cover, opposite my column, it said, one to watch, Jermaine Defoe. I said, well, this bloke's played for West Ham. Apparently, he could score goals. You should ring Harry. Well, I don't know if he'd be good enough, said Mel. So he rang Harry again. you got a player, Jermaine Defoe. He said, yeah. He said, uh, can I have him on trial for a day? I don't know if he'd be good enough. <laughs> he'll be fine for you. So that's my only claim to fame. Yeah. And I, well, I, I say it tongue-in-cheek. That's that pretty impressive. That is pretty impressive. That is a claim to fame. Yeah, no, it really is. Now, before I um, hand over to Jeff again, now, obviously, after Wembley, between sort of Wembley and 2001, obviously, this new whole stadium thing uh, yeah. you know, came about. And obviously, there were organisations such as AFC BISA, um, the KDSA, after Ken Danda, of course, the Community Mutual. And these organisations all came together to raise money to help you know, pay for the new stadium. But obviously, we needed a lot more money than that to actually build the stadium how was it funded? Uh, I think um, by hook and by crook and by trying to persuade people. I mean, we had two things that happened that were good for us. At least on paper, they looked good. One was when the football, the football foundation agreed to give us far more money than we might otherwise have been entitled to. Um, that was fairly and squarely down to the fact that we lent them two players uh, to play in a match against the FA, which they wanted to win on a Friday <laughs> night before we were playing uh -huh. Ox Oxford United away. Um, I remember saying to Mel, I need two players. Um, one of them was Danny Smith. And it was uh, a bit funny. Guy, Come on, guys, you're going with the chairman to Ealing to play on a 3G pitch because it might get us a few more million quid, which it did do. Um, and I, this, is, this is slightly more past my time, really, in the sense of it got taken over by others who were doing the negotiations. But a gentleman called Stanley Cohen, who liked football, who lived over in Camford Cliffs, wanted to get involved in what started as he'd make a loan, ended up with him putting a fairly small loan, fairly subsizable amount of money towards getting the stadium built. Um, and of course, then we got naming rights and so on. And obviously, the uh, situation with Stanley went on for quite some time. And he ended, he ended up being owed quite a lot of money. Um, and that, that was one of the things that had to be resolved in future years, as I recall. I was going to ask, just what, what do you think of the club's current situation with, uh, with the stadium? I mean, there's lots of talk about what's going to happen. What do you think is going to happen? But who would go and spend 60, 70, 80 million quid on a new stadium? Where's, where's you know, that money's got to come from somewhere. Yeah. Um, and while you're in the Premier League, um, spending that sort of money on infrastructure is a good long-term investment, but you know, frankly, it's a huge amount of money to find. 
huge amount of money to find. Um, there are lots of projects going on. A lot of clubs are doing it. And I think that Bournemouth would benefit significantly by having new facilities. But I think concentrating on the training ground is a very good thing to do, first of all. Um, and, you know, the, the infrastructure is, is creaking. But again, in the sense that if you compare it to other Premier League grounds, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's a huge amount of money to find. And I think it's a big, big ask to go out there and build a new stadium. Yeah, agreed. So uh, you said in an interview in The Independent back in 1997, you said, you know, when you support a team like Bournemouth, that you're going to get something to cheer about every 10 years or so, which keeps yes. you going. So yes, I'm indeed. just thinking I'm just thinking about it. In 98, it was Wembley. In 2008, it was minus 17. And then less than a decade later, we go and reach the Premier League. Now, I do think you're, I mean, incredible optimism, Trevor, but surely not even you would have expected that we could have actually done that. No, not at all. And I remember um, it was actually Eddie Mitchell asked me, Eddie Mitchell actually asked me to go to a meeting with Neil Blake and Max Demim uh, on Sandbanks um, quite some time before this happened and not long after Max had got involved in the club. And what came across from all of them was a very strong positivity that they really wanted to achieve something. And again, they, a different dynamic but Max, along with Jeff Mostyn, have really backed the club and taken it forward. And no, not, never in a million years would I have imagined that we would, on a wing and a prayer, have got to the Premier League. Um, and here we are five seasons in. I mean, what must that be like, the difference? Uh, compare the meeting that you had then that you were invited to compared to the first time you walked into the club. Um, the first time is ultimate negativity. And then you're with a group of guys who are thinking, you know, Let's talk about the P word. We think we can reach the top flight. Yeah, and I, I firmly believe, and I do a lot of work now on buying and selling teams across Europe. And my emphasis is always on can you get the right team of people in to run the club? Because ultimately, I've got a very good friend now who's director of football for Red Bull globally, and he looks after all their teams. And we spend a lot of time talking about strategy and how clubs evolve and how they develop and how you make them sustainable for the long term. And I think having people who can have an eye for talent and development and bringing on younger players is critical for the success in the future. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's incredible. And um, it is easy to become somewhat blase about it all. Um, and we should never do that. What do you think Trevor about the current situation? Obviously we're in the relegation zone. Um, do you think relegation... Cancel the league. Cancel the league. <laughs> but, but if we did get relegated, do you think that would be catastrophic for the club? Not, not immediately. Not immediately. Um, I think the management. I would. I'd like to think Eddie Howe would stick with the club. Um, again, I've had the pleasure of knowing him many, many years, and we don't speak as often as we used to because uh, back in '97 in the '90s, but still stay in touch. And it's lovely to see. Really lovely to see what they've done. I think that. I think, frankly, you know, everybody's been on a very long journey here. And although there are many bad things coming out of this situation and some terrible things with a number of people dying and being ill and so on, and there are positives, sense of community, sense of togetherness, sense of being, which actually reflects AFC Bournemouth. And it was lovely reading an interview with Eddie, Eddie saying that he's got to spend time at home with his family and his children who see him. I, I, I would warrant that at this stage, this 
this type of situation, not that anybody have wanted it, um, may well benefit Bournemouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it refreshes, replenishes. He's a great st- strategist. Yeah. Um, he'll get the best out of his team if they get to play those games. Um, I don't think, I think as a lawyer, it would be hugely challenging for the Premier League to decide to finish the league now yeah. um, or come up with some system. They'll be held to pay one way or the other. There's too much at stake, um, too much money at stake. And uh, much as Leeds fans and West Brom fans may well hate me for saying so, I think the league should should cancel this season and move on to the next. Well, there'll be legal consequences should the uh, should they pe- play even behind closed doors and then one of the players on the pitch contracts it, etc., or something happens, then it just seems to be nonsensical to me. Um, but, you know, who knows how it's going to play out? Well, it's, it's one of the areas where I would definitely be offering free legal advice. Because um, <laughs> all these years on, we've actually, you know, I've got a team of lawyers who work on these particular issues. Um, and we've, we've run arguments on these particular situations before. And I think that the, the worst thing the Premier League could do would be to end the season and now and say the standings are as they are yeah um yeah i think it'd also, be a lot of legal change also sorry also the uh the dutch and the belgians and the french now all avoiding their leagues and the uh, head of uh, fifa's medical team saying yesterday that we should just forget about this season and start next next season i think the pressure seems to be building yeah and i obviously i'm privy through the clubs we work with to a number of the discussions that are ongoing so I'm just giving my personal opinion rather than the advice we're giving to any clubs um, that we work with. But I, I, I agree. I think that the, the example that a number of leagues are coming out with, uh, I mean, the French league haven't resolved what they're going to do about the top league. Um, the Dutch have just left it intact and the teams aren't being promoted or relegated. I do think uh, people would say, well, you would say that as a Bournemouth fan, that's the, 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 um, the best way to be. When you said earlier something I picked up on about um, having the right blend of staff at AFC Bournemouth, um, and we seem to have a good spine right down through to you know the management. Um, that's all very well and good, but we wouldn't have get you know, got to the Premier League without money and spending more than we should. So when people talk about the fairy tale, people also mention financial fair play. Um, what's your view on that? Because you know. As much as AFC Bournemouth are the blueprint for teams that want to get promoted, in some ways you could argue that we did it in a way that was unethical. Um, as have other teams. Um, other teams have breached the rules. The rules are there. The rules set out what happens if you breach them. Um, I mean, to be honest, when I look at that, I think that It's it's you know you, you, it's a bit like George Orwell, Animal Farm. All pigs are equal, but some pigs are more equal than others. I think that it, it, every club will look at how it runs its business, how it runs its finances, and make the right strategic decisions. Bournemouth have made the, their decisions. It's decisions that have got Bournemouth into the Premier League. It's brought a lot of joy to our town. And from my perspective, without knowing all the ins and outs, um, there you know that a process has been followed and a decision reached through applying the rules. Um, Bournemouth are in the Premier League. They've been penalised. 
um, you know, perhaps we shouldn't have got minus 17 points all those years ago. Mm. And perhaps we should have fallen into administration. Um, maybe Roger Bolly's legs might have worked better. There's lots of things that um, <laughs> you never know. could have happened, but didn't. Um, and the club's fought and overcome. So maybe sometimes we deserve a bit of luck, a bit of the rub of the green. That's got us into the Premier League. And, you know, that is very much down to Max Demin. Yeah. So what's next for you then, Trevor? Are you going to be uh, head of legal advice at FIFA or something like that coming up soon? <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is I've, I've been offered a number of roles at different clubs um, and, and things outside of football, but particularly within football. And I think that, you know, my, my pleasure is really a lot of the factors that comes into my mind is can I still watch Bournemouth play um, <laughs> we, were, um, <clears throat> we were we were I'll tell you a funny story we were doing a deal to buy Everton and Everton were playing down at Bournemouth and you remember the game we're 2-0 down aren't we oh yes with, of course eight minutes to go something like that yeah I'm, I'm sitting with the Everton directors and um, one of my clients and of course, I know where the deal's at. They know where the deal's at. And I'm sitting there, I've got 2 0. It goes back to 2 all. I've controlled my excitement at this point and being very diplomatic. Of course, then Everton goes 3 2 up. And you remember it was like six minutes injury time? Yeah. Um, when they, they scored <clears throat> and they celebrated too long. Ball goes back to the centre. Uh, ball goes down the own, score 3 all. I launched myself into the air. <laughs> I have never been left to forget that by my clients who continually remind me that my impartiality and, and ability to control emotions is fundamental to not giving the game away. And they just, I just get teased remorselessly about that. So yeah, it's brilliant to be a Bournemouth fan working within sport, to be honest. Oh, good stuff. And it's, yeah, well, it's nice to um, talk to you. And it seems that um, a lot of members of staff whether it's um you know today or yesterday they're all fans as well which uh, all sort of brings us together and makes it that much more close-knit feel there's a huge amount of people that pull in all one direction every day of the week to keep that club afloat and heading in the right direction and what i learned is you know i i used to have all, I, all my opinions about who should play left back right back all that sort of stuff and i still do but what I did learn is that it's a really hard job being a chairman, being a director, being involved in the running of that club. Um, and no one I've seen in all the years has ever made a decision other than the one they believe was right. And I think, I think you can ask more than that. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, Trevor, it's been uh, fantastic to have you on today. Thank you so much for joining Absolute us. Absolute pleasure. And Jeff, once again, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. And uh, great to talk to you, Trevor. For, for me, you've always been the, the sort of hero who saved the club back in those days. So thanks again for what you did. Really appreciate no, it. No, I think it's, um, as I've always said, it's just incredible how many people pull together. And that's why it's such fun to do this. You know, here we are, say, all these years on. And hopefully, hopefully, football to look forward to in the not-too-distant future once it's all cleared up. Yeah, so it's great to hear from Trevor. And if you want to watch that interview, I mean, I know you've just heard it, but if you do, just go to youtube.com forward slash AFCB podcast. Now, if you're enjoying what you're listening to, you're very welcome to buy us a coffee. Just go to afcbpodcast.com slash coffee. You can buy us between one and five, three dollars each. It's not actual coffee, but it's the equivalent price. So if you see value in this, then, well... 
we would really appreciate it because we've got to pay for hosting and pay for each and every month that we do on StreamYard, which is the stuff that powers the YouTube videos as well. If you want to contribute to the podcast or indeed want to contribute by coming on to one of the shows, then just get in touch with us. But for coffee donations, it's afcbpodcast.com forward slash coffee. So a provisional date has been confirmed for the return of AFC Bournemouth in the Premier League June the 20th and it's mooted that it could be live on the BBC, quite possibly being the Premier League's most watched fixture in all of its history. Little old Bournemouth, because it would, yeah, on the BBC, um, the televised matches are being released uh, very, very soon. Sky are making 25 of theirs free to air. Amazon are making them free. Uh, BBC, of course, will be. Um, BT, not so much. Over to you, Jake Humphrey. What's going on there? But anyway, we'll keep you updated. But stay tuned as we've got another lockdown interview dropping very soon. This has been Back of the Net, the lockdown interviews. We, we were trying to save the club, but we were, we were we were on the receiving end of quite a number of threats for quite some time about being caught up in litigation, threatened personally because we tried to save or we had saved the club. Um, some people believed it shouldn't have gone that way, it should have gone another way. And... Podcast Network.